1837, the same year Queen Victoria ascended the throne, when Thomas Sutherland brought a lawsuit against a certain Miss Caroline Newton. Apparently, he had tried to steal a kiss from her. Yeah, I guess a kiss, love. And she was so affronted that she bit his nose off. <laughs> the court acquitted Miss Newton, declaring, When a man kisses a woman against her will, she is fully entitled to bite his nose off, if she so pleases. And eat it up, a barrister added. Hear, hear. Hear, hear. Hear, hear. hear, hear. Wow, I have so many questions. First of all, how awesome is it that the court ruled in the woman's favor instead of blaming the victim? I mean, how often does that happen in history, right? But more importantly, what does this say about sex in the Victorian era? I mean, we all know the Victorians were notorious prudes about sex, right? But was that really true? Well, Yes and no. The truth is, they were both prudish and prurient. The age of Victoria was bursting at the seams with variety as people coped with a new, massively urbanized world, and much of the consternation about sex was actually a reaction to the changes brought about by that urbanization. Today we're going to hear all about both the prudery and the ludery as we explore vice in the Victorian era. That's what we're talking about in today's episode. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our new patron, Angus Keane, for making this episode possible. I'd also like to thank our new sponsor, Manscaped. Hey folks, this is an extended version of the talk that I gave last month at the Intelligent Speech Conference. If you were there, thanks. You'll find a whole lot more to your liking today, and I'm going to try to more fully answer some of the great questions that you asked. If you missed it, well, here's all that and more. And if you'd like to hear more from the others who are on our Vice in the Victorian Era panel, including Chris of the Age of Victoria podcast, Eugene of the History of Drugs in Society podcast, and our moderator, Bree, of the Pontifax podcast. Check out their awesome shows and visit intelligentspeechconference.com for a recording of our talk, which will be posted soon. And now, let's get to the show. We're talking vice in the Victorian era. Ah, that great diversion of humankind, the so-called vice of sex. Or certain kinds of sex, at least. And here, we cannot be more clear that the word vice belongs in air quotes, because what was considered vice then may not be at all what we would consider it now. All right, so the Victorian period covers the reign of Queen Victoria, which lasted from 1837 to 1901, spanning the latter two-thirds of the 19th century. Now, the Victorians are, of course, renowned for being prudes. That's not the whole story, 
but it's also not entirely off the mark either. See, they certainly did talk a lot about sex with great fluster and consternation in literature and newspapers and medical journals and religious sermons and reformer gatherings. And many of the views expressed were quite, uh, let's just call it quaint by today's standards. Here are a few colorful examples. Lord Acton, a highly respected gynecologist of the era, wrote, The majority of women, happily for them, are not very much troubled by sexual feeling of any kind. Hmm. Then there was Queen Victoria, who supposedly declined to include lesbians in the 1885 act criminalizing same-sex love because she couldn't imagine how women did such things. Now, this is most likely apocryphal, she probably didn't really say that, but it's not that far off the mark for the times. Check it out. A Scottish judge in 1811, one Lord Meadowbank, hearing the case of two girls accused of fornicating together, declared it equally imaginary with witchcraft, sorcery, or cardinal copulation with the devil. Now, I apologize for that horrendous Scottish accent, but the opinion expressed, yeah, it was not that far off the mark for the times. Finally, across the pond, and here's something that was asked for by uh, one of the attendees at the conference, across the pond over in America, cornflakes were invented when one William Harvey Kellogg insisted a bland breakfast cereal was needed to avoid arousing the passions. Apparently ham and eggs were making folks far too randy. And also, graham crackers were invented for the same reason by the right reverend Sylvester Graham. So in short, yes, there was plenty of prudery going on. However, that's not the whole story. There was prudery, but also its opposite. This was in fact a time when people began to explore sexuality like never before. So what gave rise to this new interest in sexuality then? Well, it turns out that all this exploration and the whole bugaboo over sex was driven in large part by massive urbanization. Now that might not be the first thing that you would have thought of to consider, and I certainly wouldn't have, but in fact, urbanization almost couldn't help but impact attitudes, including those around sexuality. It was that massive. Check it out. So according to statistics from Our World in Data, the population of Britain in this period nearly quadrupled over the course of the 19th century, from a little over 10 million to nearly 40 million. Meanwhile, a study by Zinkina et al. found the percent of the population who lived in cities went from about 20% at the start of the 19th century to 60% at the close of the century in Britain. Kadzooks, man, that is some urbanization. And get this, over this same period, the population of London grew sevenfold. Seven! You put all that together, and that is bound to shake things up. So the density of cities reached a critical mass such that new attitudes towards sex could not help but emerge. Now what did that look like? Well, we're going to dive into three hullabaloo's over so-called vice that emerged out of that ginormous urbanization shakeup. Unwed motherhood, prostitution, and same-sex love. (laughs) 
So first, there was something considered quite the vice at the time, a rise in unwed motherhood, or rather a perceived rise because they didn't have the best statistical methodology back then. And actually, it turns out the ratio of illegitimate births was actually declining throughout the Victorian period. But commentators at the time, they saw all these unwed mothers concentrated in cities and their monocles just popped right out of their eye sockets. Now this faux phenomenon of rising unwed motherhood did not actually result from people having more premarital sex, but rather from these new urban circumstances. See, in the previous century, as many as a third to a half of all brides had been pregnant when they took their vows at the altar, according to historian Anna Clark. So they weren't having any more premarital sex than before. They had as much as they had always had. But the thing was, in the previous century, they had had established customs for dealing with that. Nosy neighbors could enforce shotgun weddings in rural 18th century villages, but in anonymous 19th century cities, they could not. When a Tess of the Durbervilles found a bun in the oven, there was no one to stop her angel from slipping away. That's a little inside baseball for lit nerds out there, but you get my point. Old customs to prevent this no longer functioned. And even if the couple wanted to marry, which they often did, they might not be able to afford it anymore on the wages that they were earning in this period. Indeed, as Clark reports, in industrial towns where women could earn relatively high wages by tending power looms, the rate of illegitimacy was actually less than in towns where wages were lower. And that shows that people did often marry when they could afford it. And when they couldn't, well, they tended rather to cohabitate and start families as they otherwise would have just outside the law. So it was not so much a rise in premarital sex, but a change in circumstance created by urban living, which led to a bugaboo over unwed motherhood. Nevertheless, Victorian society reacted to reports of illegitimacy rates with great bluster and the stigma came down like a ton of bricks on the mothers themselves. Many found themselves fired from their jobs as soon as pregnancy became apparent. And after the baby was born, the search for a new job was hampered then by the stain of illegitimacy. Thus, giving birth outside of marriage risked joblessness, social censure, alienation from friends and family, and ultimately, starvation for both mother and child. So that was the bugaboo over unwed motherhood, driven by urbanization undercutting the traditional customs and living wages that previously had supported marriage. And the stigmatization of unwed motherhood doomed many to a downward spiral leading ultimately to prostitution, which we're going to hear about in just a moment. But first, we are going to take a short break, and we'll be back after this. Hey guys. Facial hair is in these days, but I want to talk to you about that other hair, you know, down there. If you're looking like Darwin on a bad day in the Galapagos, he got that. You might want to check out our new sponsor, Manscaped. Manscaped. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. 
That's right, the 4.0! People are camping out overnight to get it! Wait, what? That's the line for the iPhone? Right, well, this is even better because there's no app for what this baby can do. Full disclosure, they did send me one of these babies to try, and this was my first time trimming the bushes, but now, clean where I want it, grizzly where I want it, and shaped to perfection. Oh my goodness! There's even a spotlight that turns on so you can see what you're doing, and their fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code HISTORYOFSEX at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. And use code HISTORYOFSEX, all one word. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Manscaped. And now, the History of Sex presents this. Ah, Mr. Holmes, Sherlock, come quick. Please, help me, sir. I've got no else to go. This woman, she's big with child. She needs our help. Indubitably, Miss Watson. A crime. Not really a crime. And I have already solved it. But that's not the help that she... Observe, Miss Watson, for I have all the facts before me. It is elementary. Okay, here we go. We may deduce from the rising rate of illegitimacy... It's actually going down. ...and the fact that the victim was clearly prostituting herself... They're cohabitating. ...scorning the fine institution of Christian marriage... Because they can't afford it. We may therefore conclude that the perpetrator of the crime was... Was her? It... You were going to say it was her, weren't you? It... No, dear Miss Watson. Uh-huh. The, right. the perpetrator was none other than... Come on, dear. Let's get you something to eat. Uh, yes, well, but... Hello? Teach her some needlework. She can learn a trade, you know. Right. Other case closed. <clears throat> Alright, we're back. So next, let's talk about sex work. Believe it or not, prostitution was actually seen as less scandalous than some of the other things that we're talking about today, but it was nevertheless seen very much as vice. It was called the great sin of great cities, and boy did this sin boom in the Victorian era. Now, estimating the exact number of sex workers and comparing it to previous centuries is notoriously difficult because it's just hard to know where to draw the line, and because so many went unreported. However, just to give you some idea, A contemporary estimate from 1817 claimed that there were some 80,000 prostitutes in London alone. Now, many of those may have been unwed women cohabitating with their common-law spouses, but even if we cut that figure in half, that still leaves 40,000 prostitutes. And to put that in perspective, according to the UK Office of National Statistics, Even today, there are only about 60,000 sex workers across all of the United Kingdom. Now, compare that to 40,000 just in London alone in the 19th century, and that's a lot of prostitutes. And that number would only climb as the Victorian period went on. So, what gave rise to this explosion in sex work? Well, two things, and they're both features of, you guessed it, urbanization. First of all, the more people there are in your service area, the more potential clients. Simple business, right? Second, cities allowed anonymity. 
You could move to the city, turn a few tricks, and make some cold cash without necessarily having your family and your grandma and your friends and your priest know what you are doing. Cities equaled opportunity. Now, of course, that is not to say that all sex workers were opportunists taking up the trade voluntarily. Certainly, some of them were forced into it by coercion or by circumstance. Rent was high, wages were low, especially for women's occupations, and so some just had little choice. And some of them were unwed mothers whose reputations had been stained and could find no better work. Others were actually kidnapped and forced into it, but a great many others, perhaps even the majority, took up the trade by choice. Consequently, the efforts of reformers generally didn't go so well. Philanthropists established institutions for quote-unquote fallen women to teach them trades. The idea was to provide some other means to support themselves. Seems reasonable enough, right? But what trades did they teach them? Laundry, domestic service, needlework, the very same low-paying women's occupations that had driven them to prostitution in the first place. So even those who wanted to get out of the sex trade tended to find themselves trapped in a vicious circle. Meanwhile, police focused mainly on getting prostitutes off of the streets and into brothels. Now, why would they do that? Because it was easier to keep track of them and to inspect for venereal disease. Medical inspections were a lot easier to manage if the patients were all in one place. Now, ironically, these inspections actually ended up spreading the diseases that they were meant to curb. You know, modern sanitary measures just had not yet become widespread, and doctors were not especially caring toward these particular patients. So, mm. In the end, reform efforts by police didn't go so well either. The effort to funnel sex workers into brothels actually only led to sex workers inventing craftier and craftier ways to avoid the police and stay out of brothels, and they were so successful at that that by the end of the century, independent prostitution boomed to such a degree that brothels had to advertise more and more exotic services just to compete with them. That's how amazingly successful they managed to avoid the police. And by the way, at this time, the most exotic service that you could procure, you want to guess what it was? It was oral sex. Far from being foreplay at this time, this was dessert. This was the pinnacle of the evening for the truly profligate client. And in Britain and America, it could often only be obtained at specialized establishments usually with French-sounding names. So it was to this sort of specialized marketing that brothels had to turn in the wake of the absolutely booming independent industry, which frankly just thrived in the newly dense urban environment. Now, one great question asked by a conference attendee was, how did prostitutes at this time avoid pregnancy? Well, to answer that, it's difficult to know what prostitutes in particular used because being marginalized, they left very little record of their practices. Usually they only show up in the record when they're arrested or something. But women in general have always had access to traditional contraceptive methods, effective or otherwise, which were often passed from woman to woman 
or from traditional keepers of women's knowledge like midwives, nuns, and prostitutes. However, in this period, there was actually a significant decline in knowledge about contraceptive methods for the average woman. And this was for several reasons. First, new laws were passed in the 19th century against pornography. And guess what? Yep, contraceptive pamphlets and instruction manuals got classed as pornography. So it became much harder to access that kind of literature. Second, the professionalization of doctors, which was largely a male profession at the time, increasingly edged midwives out of work, and with them went centuries upon centuries of traditional knowledge. And for these reasons, there was a lot more ignorance about contraceptive methods in this period than there had been before. Nevertheless, Victorian women did still seek out contraceptives. Historians Vern and Bonnie Bulow note salves, fluids, powders, tablets, pessaries, some partly effective, others totally ineffective. Other methods included douching with an antiseptic solution or inserting a sponge about the size of a walnut into the vagina like a diaphragm. And there was also a very early version of the condom made of India rubber. It had the very French name of the baudruche, meaning balloon. But at this time, condoms were generally expensive, thick, uncomfortable, and of questionable effectiveness. And so they were not exactly popular. So in short, to answer the attendees' question, any of these methods might have been used by prostitutes. However, if you considered yourself a respectable lady, quote-unquote, you had to be a little more discreet because, according to Bullo and Bullo, contraception at this time was actually deemed worse than prostitution by many authorities of the day. You heard that right. It was less bad to go into prostitution than to use contraception. <laughs> Not kidding. Thus, if you considered yourself respectable, the method least dangerous for you, socially speaking, was moderation or abstinence. And this probably contributed to women gaining that rap that we heard at the beginning of this episode of having low sexual desire. It wasn't because they were actually desiring sex less, but probably because they might have been refusing it more, having more to lose if they got caught holding the bag. In short, many women in this period took control of their lives by asserting control over their bodies, either by selling sex or by refusing it, as the case may be in response to the new conditions of the massively dense Victorian cities. So last but not least, this same density also enabled people to come together who could not have done so before. And this is nowhere more clear than in the emergence of subcultures of same-sex love. There had always been, of course, those who loved others of the same sex, but finding each other was always difficult. It was really urbanization that allowed a critical mass to be reached where finally you could just go to a certain club on a certain street and you could encounter folk who were just like you 
and you could start to feel like maybe just maybe this was something perfectly normal and not vice at all. Now, it was the male-male subculture that emerged first, probably because men were more able to live independently as bachelors without stigma. But a subculture of women who loved other women did also get going in this period. And one of the things that changed for people who loved others of the same sex was the overtness of flagging customs. I'm talking about, you know, signaling one's preferences to others who are also in the know. See, in the previous century, flags had been quite surreptitious indeed. For example, in the Netherlands, one might step on the other's foot. Or, in Paris, you might strike a tree twice with a cane to signal that you were interested in others of the same sex. This sort of thing became more overt in the Victorian period. For example, Oscar Wilde, the poet, promoted wearing a green carnation as identifier. That's considerably more brazen. You strike a tree twice with a cane, and somebody looks, there's immediately no evidence. You got a carnation on your lapel, and you've got to, like, get that thing off of there, and it's much easier for someone to find you out. So things are becoming more brazen, more out in the open. Meanwhile, this subculture also started hosting regular events. For example, men in Manchester formed a network that put on dress balls. And you would go to these things, and at the door you would be met by a man dressed as a nun, and you had to give a password. The password was sister. And when you got inside, a blind accordionist would play as you and the other masqueraders danced the night away. You could go to these sorts of things. You can see how that would start to create a subculture. And this subculture then started to develop shared mannerisms as well. For example, in 19th century Paris, effeminacy in men, which had always been more of a sign of, uh, you know, dominant or passive sexual roles, at this time, effeminacy started to be seen more as a mark of homosexuality in general, marking one as part of this in-group, this new subculture. And identity was forming. Now, another great question asked by a conference attendee was, what about transgender folk in this period? Well, the first medical recognition of transgender folk did come in the late 19th century from the budding science of sexology, particularly in the writings of the German Magnus Hirschfeld and the British Havelock Ellis. Now, they didn't use the same terms exactly, but it was pretty much the same essential concept. As for known individuals who may have been what we would today call transgender, it's hard to identify for certain, but there are those about which we might wonder. For example, one possibility was a certain Dr. James Berry, Inspector General of Hospitals. Now, this accomplished Victorian gentleman, a hot-tempered teetotaler and vegetarian with a reputation as a lady killer, he was a romancer, was actually born Margaret Ann Bulkley, and his secret was only discovered when he died in 1865. Another possibility was the pair Fanny Park and Stella Bolton. In 1870, these two middle-upper-class ladies were arrested coming out of a theater in their evening gowns. Why? Well, because they had actually been born Frederick Park and Ernest Bolton. And they were brought to trial on charges of conspiring to commit sodomy, 
That was never proved, and both were quickly acquitted. The papers treated the event as a laughable farce, but there was actually a darker side to the story. See, Member of Parliament Lord Arthur Clinton died mysteriously the day after receiving a subpoena to testify at the trial. Now, Clinton had been involved in a relationship with Bolton, who actually called herself his wife and even had cards printed listing her as Lady Arthur Clinton. Now, the cause of the Member of Parliament's death was recorded as scarlet fever, but it was more likely either suicide or a faked death meant to cover fleeing abroad. Furthermore, despite the hopeful note of Park and Bolton's swift acquittal, after this trial, society took a much harder stance. And in 1885, a law was passed criminalizing gross indecency between men enabling convictions even where sodomy could not be proven, as it could not in Park and Bolton's trial. Now, whether any of these people would actually identify as transgender today is, of course, very much open to debate. They didn't have that concept available to them at the time, but even if they did, nothing about what we've heard so far suggests an open-shut case where they're definitely transgender. Not at all. Cross-dressing, sure, but that does not always overlap with transgender identity. And sexual orientation is an entirely separate question as well. But these things can and do overlap in some individuals, and one wonders if perhaps they did in James Barry, Fanny Park, and Stella Bolton. Meanwhile, for those who desired surgical confirmation of their gender at this time, well, they would have to wait, but not too much longer. See, 19th century anesthesia and medical procedures was still pretty iffy. But it was advancing rapidly, so they didn't have to wait too much longer. Soon a person would be able to go under the knife with a reasonable expectation of waking up from it afterward. And the first gender confirmation surgery was undergone only a few decades after the Victorian period in the 1920s in Germany by one Dora Richter. Now, Germany was also the place that saw the first gay rights organization founded at the close of the Victorian period in 1897. The Scientific Humanitarian Committee, founded by Magnus Hirschfeld, fought for the repeal of paragraph 175, which criminalized male homosexuality in Germany. Meanwhile, that same year, in Britain, a secret society called the Order of Sharonea was formed, morbidly named after the battle where the male lovers of the Theban band in ancient Greece were slaughtered in 338 BCE. And Oscar Wilde was most likely an early member of the Order of Sharonea. So, for some, at least, organizations were forming. A new subculture was arising. But despite that, one did still have to be wary of the law. While Park and Bolton got off pretty easily, the renowned poet and playwright Oscar Wilde did not. He was convicted in 1895 for gross indecency, that was the new charge that ratcheted up the heat against homosexuals after Park and Bolton's trial, Wilde was sentenced to two years of hard labor. 
Now that was better than the death penalty, which was on the books at the beginning of the century and repealed in 1861, but it was still a very harsh punishment, and it left Wilde's health in poor shape. Upon release, he sailed for France and never returned to Britain again, and three years later, he died in poverty. Same-sex lovers of the time still had to be quite wary of the law. Now, I'm tempted to say that Wilde's true crime was really just daring to think that the time had come when alternative orientations, genders, and sexual practices could finally break out into the open. And as we can see in hindsight, he was a little ahead of his time on that point. However, he did actually have fairly good reason for his optimism. Times were changing. Despite all the prudery, the Victorian period was an era of unprecedented exploration. The bugaboos over unwed motherhood and prostitution and same-sex love, though oppressive, brought new practices to light and forced people to question whether what was considered vice was really vice at all. Medicine began to study sexuality in earnest for the first time, beginning to recognize a garden of variety beyond the traditional norm of straight male-female cisgender unions. And lovers of the same sex, despite continuing dangers, could and did meet each other in sufficient numbers to develop subcultures of their own. And all of this was enabled by massive urbanization, which broke down old customs enabled folk of alternative persuasions to find each other, and demanded new attitudes towards sex and gender. Now to close out this episode, let's return to where we began with the curious case of Miss Caroline Newton, acquitted for biting the nose off of Mr. Thomas Saverland, who had tried to steal a kiss. That sounds quaint and quite Victorian, right, in its huff-puffery over something, you know, so mildly sexual as a, a smooch. But it actually carries a stronger significance than that, which casts Victorian attitudes in an entirely different light. And now, I have to say, FYI, I feel compelled to report that historians have found no actual court case record associated with this story. We only have newspaper reports after the fact. Make it that what you will, but here's the story. Apparently, it was the day after Christmas in a taproom when Savalant first stole a kiss from a different young miss. She had stated that her husband was away in Birmingham, and she'd promised no man would kiss her while he was gone. Savaland took this as a challenge and planted a wet one right on her lips. Now the young miss was embarrassed, but she took it without protest, in good part as a joke, as the news article says. However, to her aid came her sister, Miss Caroline Newton, who confronted Savaland over the impropriety. And at that point, Savaland became angry and said he'd kiss her too, and the two fell to brawling. They fell to the ground in a scuffle, parted, then back at it again, and finally, Savaland was heard to call out, Ah, she's got me nose! And then, as the article records, when they parted, he was bleeding profusely from the nose, and a portion of it, which defendant had bitten off, 
she was seen to spit out of her mouth upon the ground. <laughs> the jury quickly acquitted Miss Newton, and the chairman of the trial told the prosecutor that he was sorry for the loss of the complainant's nose, but if he would play with cats, he must expect to get scratched. Here, 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 here. Now, this anecdote shows Victorian so-called prudery in an entirely different light. As seen here, it wasn't just that the Victorians were all fluster-blustery about sex. Rather, they were working out a new attitude toward it. Women began to assert their right to control their own bodies, as seen here in the bold Miss Caroline Newton. And CNN has even called this case the kiss that proved that no means no. Victorian women, far from the innocent angels of stereotype, were beginning to boldly assert their rights. Now, we think of the sexual revolution as a phenomenon of like the 1960s, right? But it actually began in the 1800s. Women and mothers and prostitutes and lovers of the same sex and transgender folk, along with so many others traditionally marginalized, sowed the seeds in the 19th century that would bear fruit in the 20th. How's that for Victorian monocle-popping prudery, huh? He gets mad. Well, that's all I have for you today, folks. I hope you learned something. I know I did. I want to thank the Intelligent Speech Conference and the attendees who asked many smart questions. Folks, if you'd like what we're doing here on this show, you can support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing. You can also pledge on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a fine, upstanding citizen or a delightfully fallen fright, bow-tied or bustled as you darn well please or whatever you like, I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash btnewberg. Next month is Pride Month, folks, and we've got an interview slated with the author of a new book coming out on the Sacred Band of Thebes, a core of ancient Greek crack troops entirely comprised of gay lovers. And those are also the ones referenced in this episode by the Order of Sharonea. After we have that interview, we will pick up on part two of our Viking Gender Bender series, which we started last month, and we'll have lots of other great stuff coming your way as well. All right, folks, I will see you next time. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.